Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. It's it's massive, simple calculations. Right? It's it, it is literally in our case, and this is what all of what we call natural language processing is. You're just comparing words. That's all you're doing. You're just comparing words and grammatical structures. Now, as it happens, right? If you've got a thousand articles, and each article's got a thousand words, that's a thousand factorial to compare every word to every other word. That's that's half a trillion calculations you got. Yeah, and that would be a small, AWS. right? But but now that you've got this massive computing processing power, you can do that in a second. It's crazy, but that's what's driving all this, all the advances, at least in you know what we're seeing. It's not, like I say, some people are inventing some super brain or yeah. inventing cold fusion. It's taking these old ideas, these old principles, and applying massive computing processing power to it. And marrying that with people who understand markets. Hello, all. We've got one of my favorite modern philosophers on the pod today. Now, he doesn't quite call himself a philosopher or write philosophy books or teach philosophy, but there's no doubt in my mind he is a philosopher. He makes his readers think. He makes them uncomfortable. He makes us see the game and not just the players or the score. And I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Ben Hunt, who founded Second Foundation Partners and writes for the incredibly insightful Epsilon Theory. So welcome, Ben. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Thanks for that introduction. I really appreciate that. No worries. I'm a philosophy major, so it... it uh, right on, brother. Very good. Some, some of your stuff hits me from time to time more as philosophy than market musing. Um, and I'm a little under the weather today, so uh, apologize for the listeners for my voice being a little scratchy. Uh, but we're going to dig deep and get through it with Ben. How are you feeling? You're out in Connecticut? Yeah, I live out in the woods, man. So um, it's 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 a little easier for me to stay isolated, let's say. And, uh, you know, we've got I've got I've got four daughters. We've got three of them at home right now. And uh, one of them will be uh, coming back for uh, the, the, the long Thanksgiving and Christmas break pretty soon from law school. So uh yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tough out there. H, we, we try to they're all H names, right? <laughs> yeah, it's such a conceit. I, I mean, I've, yeah, we, we, we started off with uh, with a Harper Hunt and then with the Hannah Hunt. And then once you got two, you know, we, we, we were stuck with it. So. Yeah, then you had to do it. No Helen Hunts, though. No, 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 no. Haven, <laughs> Haven and Hallie. To, 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 you to remind me of being out on the farm. We tell my dad, we're like, he's 76 or something out in Arizona. And we're like, he's been practicing social distancing for 30 years. He'll be just fine. <laughs> you got it. You got yeah. it. Now, my, my wife's from Texas originally. I'm from Alabama. And, you, you know, we, we, we moved out here because, my, as my wife said, I don't want to see our neighbors. <laughs> so. 
And how well, so how big social, but how big's the farm? Oh, I, I mean, I call it a farm. My, my my grandfather was a real farmer, and he would laugh, you know, for me to call this a farm, right? Because it's a it's a you know a money pit and a hobby is what it is. I think yeah. it's about forty four acres, which is you know pretty Dang. pretty big, you know, in you know Fairfield County, Connecticut. But it's yeah, uh, that's about forty three point eight more acres than I have here in Chicago. <laughs> there you go. But look, uh, see, I mean, it's. It's chickens, it's sheep, it's goats, it's, you know, bees and horses and dogs. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're movable works of art more than they are, uh, you know, far more than a working farm. For sure. I get it. Although if society all falls apart, you're, you're in the lead versus the rest of us. I'm ready, man. I, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, all of us have a, you know, guys of a certain age, we, we, we start, you know, having these kind of anti-fantasies about, defending the homestead from the roving uh, motorcycle gangs. But and what's, I'm ready. I'm ready. What's with the bees? I never read about that anymore. But remember the bees were all dying because of cell phones or something? Is that still a yeah. thing? Uh, actually, bees in, in general are making a comeback of sorts. Uh, you know, the, that colony collapse disorder or disease, whatever was causing it, is still around. But the in absolute numbers, uh, the the bee populations are are, are ticking up again after really? some period. So it wasn't the cell phones. It was not that we know. Not that we know. Because we got five G. Five G. We got to worry about five G, of course. That's true. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so give us a quick personal background, if you could, of where you've been and how you got to uh, creating Epsilon Theory. Yeah, it 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 it, it it's been a long path. I, my wife says it's hard for me to keep a job, and that, that, that seems to be the case. I Look, I, I started off as an academic. I, I mean, I wasn't in philosophy per se, but I was in the oxymoron of political science, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, this weird bastard child of, of history and economics uh, with a, you know, fair amount of philosophy thrown into it. You know, when I was in academia, so I got my PhD and I was a professor for 10 years, I was much more on the, I'll call it the science side of political science. Uh, and the, the older I get, though, the, the more I've gone over to the, I'll call it the history, or as you said, the, the, the philosophy side yeah. of political science, uh, because it is, it is quite the, the oxymoron. I think pretty much all of social science is pretty silly when it comes to the science part of it. Although I certainly understand that the, the impetus and that the impetus is just trying to figure out the world, trying to figure out what are the patterns that exist in our human worlds, whether that's the human world of voting, whether that's the human world of, of markets and investing. And I, I think that's something that, that certainly your audience has in common with with, with me and so many other people in this world of investing is we're trying to figure out the patterns, right? You know, you're there, you say, what, what are the rules that, that we're operating in here? And, and that's what we mean by edge, that we've, we've got some insight into the patterns that exist around, like I say, either the human interaction of investing and, and, and money or, you know, as we've seen a lot about recently around voting and elections. So 
so, you know, that's always been kind of the driving force for me. And like I say I did it in academia for uh, through graduate school and then uh, a professor for 10 years. Where were you a professor? Uh, NYU at first and then tenured down at SMU. And, SMU, you know, the country club down there. It, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Dallas is, uh, I love Dallas. Uh, that academia, of course, is a church and it's, for someone, and again, I think this describes probably a lot of your, your listeners as well, Jeff, we've got that, that entrepreneurial bug, and it is a bug. It's not a feature. It's a bug. I, I mean, yeah. if you've got that entrepreneurial bug, you can't help yourself but try to start companies or start new things. And, and that was certainly the case for me in, in, in academia. Started a software company, uh, ended up leaving academia, you know, being... Which seems like a weird thing for a political science history person to start a software company. Well, that was always my thing, right? I I mean, you know, trying to, it was a a self-taught programmer and trying to, to figure, figure shit out. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's what most academics have in common. For me, it was again, kind of more on that science programming side of things. Um, And Look, we did, we did well with the company. I left academia, uh, you know, the company's still kicking around. It, uh, uh, you know, started with another company. What was it, software? <laughs> Very boring stuff, which was <laughs> wonderful, right? Because we, we started the software company right at, well, we started the company in March of 2000. So I think on the very day that the NASDAQ broke, you know, we started our software company. Uh, but it was it was it was such boring stuff. It was trying to uh, do novel things with parts catalogs and schematics for construction equipment rental companies, right? I, I mean, I can't imagine something more boring, right? And but yeah. but because it was boring, it had a real need and niche, and the the actual guts of the software were what I had always worked in for, for academia and actually now have driven my investment career and now Epsilon theory. And that's simply this, trying to turn what we'll call unstructured data, the words that we read, the, the conversations that we hear. In this case, the drawings that exist on paper for a, you know, a cat uh, you know, backhoe loader. Right? Yeah. And, you know, and turn that into something that we can actually extract meaning from, where we can see those rules and those patterns. So that was, you know, the software to do it. And, you know, we did, we did well with the company, but I, I just couldn't imagine spending the rest of my life looking at schematics of construction yeah. equipment. <laughs> Caterpillar parts. Exactly, exactly. So uh, sold my stake in the company and left to do some, some venture capital investing, some private equity work. A buddy of mine uh, was working at a long only uh, asset manager, money manager in, uh, here in Connecticut. He said, look, we're always talking about companies and about patterns and trying to figure out you know, how things work, how games work. Why, why don't you come you know, work with me? We're gonna start up a long short equity fund you know, employee money inside this fund, uh, which ended up being like $10 million, which was like 
are you crazy? That's that's what the yeah. employees put in. It's like you know, nuts. And, Only in uh, Connecticut. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. And and say, well, you know, this is the biggest game there is. It's the game of markets. And so that was very intriguing to me to try to figure out this game, to try to figure out how do again we take unstructured data, unstructured information, the stuff you hear, the stuff you read, the stuff you talk about. And, and what are the patterns in the way that that influences and impacts us uh, as investors? So, you know, it was a baptism by fire for me in, in 2005, uh, you know, starting this little hedge fund. And we did really well. I, I mean, look, there are certain periods in the world where I think an outsider's perspective can be really useful. And this was definitely an outsider's perspective, right? I didn't come out of Wall Street. I didn't come out of that flow of information and buy, buy, buy. And, you know, we did really well in 05. We did really well in 06. We did really well in 07. And then we did great in 08. And that really made us, uh, made the fund. So we, um, you know, the money came, you know, really flowing in after that. I mean, I think the, I think the fund got, we got close to a billion dollars in the fund. But and I think this will be an experience that has been shared by you know, a lot of your, your, your listeners and, and a lot of the people we've had on the show. March of 09, it's like you went to the wall and you just flipped a switch on our returns. Yep. They just flatlined, right? I, I mean, it, we never lost money for our clients. And that's something I'm really, to this day, really proud of. But from March of 09 on, it's single digit returns charging, you know, one and a half and 20, which is just- Right, while the market's turning out 20 to 30. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, our our clients stuck with us because we had, like I said, we we saved them in in, in 2008 and we never lost the money. And Uh, so in 08? Oh yeah, 08, we were up like 25%, you know, net. For a long short, that's impressive. A lot of long shorts got taken to the woodshed. Yeah, yeah, because we did have a I mean, look. We did have a different perspective, but but even that perspective stopped working for really making money in March of '09. So by 2011, you know, we made the very difficult decision. And again, I'm sure my wife has still forgiven me for this, but you know, we gave all the money back. We gave all the money back to our clients. And in retrospect, as hard as that was at the time, it was from a business perspective is probably the smartest thing I ever did because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so, for two respects, right? We, we never lost the money, but I feel certain if we had just kept on going, we would have, it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't, you know, our approach, I'll call it kind of a value oriented catalyst oriented approach didn't work. Just say, you know, yeah, our shorts got killed and our longs went up, but just stopped with the rest of the market. And it was. Uh, but it's like the ultimate know. trust builder, right? Of like an honesty approach of like, I'm giving you your money back where every other hedge fund manager is calling them, asking them for, yeah. for more of their money. Absolutely. And that's, that's if, if there's one piece of advice I've got for anyone in this business, it's that. Give the money back. <laughs> give them, well, yeah, well, basically, yes. I, I mean, the, the idea is, that, is this. This business we have chosen, you know, to, to use a godfather term, right? It, it's, it's, it, 
It can create a wonderful life for you and your family and your children and maybe your children's children, really can. Uh, you are in this for the long haul. And the, the one thing you can't recreate in this business is, is your reputation. If you, you, you never wanna go all in and you never want to do anything that's going to, 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 to break your reputation. If you just do that, you know, this business over a lifetime is, is just incredibly personally rewarding, not just monetarily, but every other way. You work with the smartest people in the world. You're always trying to figure out problems. Uh, it's, it's a great business to be in, uh, but you know, you've got to have that trust in that, in, in, in yeah. that reputation. And That's I've, everything. We've been talking a lot on here of whether managers should change their stripes or go out of business. Mm -hmm. From an investor standpoint, I'd love for you to just give me that one thing I want you for in the portfolio. But if that goes 10 years without making money, what's the management firm supposed to do, right? It's hard for them to make that long stretch and, and kind of risk their whole careers and their business just to provide that one piece to you. But then that's kind of a, a weird problem overall in the market. If, if everyone's changing their stripes, they're kind of converging to the same point yep. and nobody's just providing this these sole risk premiums, so to speak. Now, look, Jeff, that, that's exactly right. And my strong advice is, you know, be authentic, right? And do your thing, <laughs> yeah? And so, look, we gave the money back because I wanted to try to figure out how do you make money? How do, <laughs> how do you make alpha in this environment that, our old way of doing things, a catalyst-oriented, a, a fundamentals-oriented approach, it does not work. Just, I mean, I mean it is, you know, it's, it's funny, I go around talking to people, you know, people whose names you know, right, that, 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 that say, you know, I don't know, Dan Struckenmiller, right, you know, talking yeah. to him in, 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 in like 2012, and I say, look, you know, look, it's, 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 it's Fed-driven, it's, uh, you know, the fundamentals don't work. Uh, you know, uh, another guy, let's say his last name is, uh, you know, uh, Luperman, you know, same, same, same thing. So, so, so Luperman and Struckenmiller, I'm having these conversations in 2012, and they're going, no, 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 no. You know what I'm saying? It's, this, is a, this is an organic, you know, economic recovery. You know, it's, it's, it's fundamentals, you know, we're, we're going to be great. And now fast forward to, you know, the last year or two, these two guys, you know, they're at the front on CNBC banging their no, oh, you know, fundamentals don't work. It's all the Fed, and you know, please give it yeah. to us. So it it's so important, I think, to 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 when you feel it in your bones that the world has changed and and what you do well uh, isn't working for your clients. Give the money back before they require it back of you. <laughs> right, before That's, they ask. It, 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 it's the thing to do, I swear to God. It's hard at the time, but it's it, it preserves your career in this business and your ability to maintain that authenticity because that's that that's everything in this business. Um, so, sorry, I derailed the whole bio there, but then you- uh, No, not at all. Then you ended up at Salient. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I was in a position where, you know, we, we wound down the hedge fund and 
I was trying to figure it out. And that, that's when I started writing epsilon theory. So I, I wrote the first note, I called it a manifesto. I mean, how grandiose and self-absorbed is that? Right? Yeah. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You just watched anyway, Jerry Maguire, probably. <laughs> that's right, that's right, right, right. So, so anyway, I wrote this note. I sent it out to like 100 people, you know, clients, friends. It's like that old police song, right, where you throw the, the message in a bottle and, you know, the next morning you come back and there are 100 bottles washed up on your shore. Yeah. And that, that was really the reaction to this, to say, look, what, what we're doing doesn't work. I think I've got an idea for, you know, what might work, which is to pay attention again to unstructured data, to narratives, to the stories that were told and try to figure out, well, let's not just kind of wave our hands at it and say, oh, it affects us. Let's actually try to measure it and try to figure out, well, what are the rules of that? You know, what are the rules of when, you know, Bernanke says, oh, green shoots and the, the market goes way up or, you know, Draghi says, you know, we will do whatever it takes. And we go from, you know, limit down to limit up just on the basis of these words, which never translate into actual policy or things. How does that work? Right? Let's, let's try to figure that out. And so with, you know, just word of mouth over, you know, the last, whatever, seven years, that hundred people has become, you know, a hundred thousand people to, you know, read my stuff and, you know, talk with them and, and try to figure this out. Uh, but yeah, I needed a, I, I wanted to try to find a perch where I could still be in, involved in markets, right? Not just sitting in my, you know, farmhouse here in Connecticut, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, I found What's a- the farm a, equivalent of an ivory tower? The, uh, exactly, exactly. Hay bale so, tower or something. Exactly. So yeah, uh, Salient, you know, an asset manager based out of Houston, uh, they were a client of mine in the hedge, they were an investor in my hedge fund, so that's how I knew them. And so I joined them as their, you know, chief risk officer and chief investment strategist and the like. And uh, it, was a, it was a great perch for me where I didn't have to sell, you know, but I could be useful to them to open doors for, for what they had, which were... Yeah, it's it's forty act mutual funds, separately managed accounts, mostly around uh, the the MLP space, which was you know hot then in two thousand and fifteen, but yeah. is uh, you know a very different story today. We had some good memes around that of like, but the yield, but the yeah, yield. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And weren't they doing some trend following stuff too? Is how we got they were they were absolutely back so when. yeah so they had a uh, a risk parity strategy, which you know I'm still I'm still a big believer in that on. You know, and I live just down the street from the whole Bridgewater crew. Uh, so we were, you know, only like, you know, one one thousandth the size of the, <laughs> the Bridgewater, yeah. you know, all weather fun. But yeah, we did that. We did some trend following. It was a, it was, it was a wonderful place, wonderful place. But my, and, when my partners there at Salient, we left, we spun out in uh, uh, summer of 2018. So two years ago to start second foundation party where, look, again, this is something that I think a lot of your listeners and probably you too have some experience with this. If you're gonna to try to do something new and if we really are trying to do something new with Second Foundation Partners, both with what we publish, both with our research, it's very hard to do that from inside the belly of the beast, yeah. right? It's very hard to do that from inside a mainstream structured asset manager. So, um, you know, we had a very, uh, you know, extremely amicable spin out. 
I took all the, the intellectual property that I had around epsilon theory in our research, came, you know, my partner from Houston came up and joined me uh, up here in, in Connecticut. And that's what we do full time now. It's, it's, it's research around narrative and it's publishing within epsilon theory. That's, that's what and we do. And so from outside looking in, it, it seemed to me you were talking too much about Trump being a lunatic and some of this stuff. And then the, <laughs> and then the split happens. But you're saying that wasn't the case. It looked like not they were all. like, dude, you can't be saying all this stuff on our. Not, on not, our not, not at all. Look, they, the, I've, I've only good things to say, you know, even about the compliance officers at, at Salient. No way. I don't <laughs> believe that. Nope, nobody has good. Stuff well, OK. To say about a well, compliance. OK. OK. Not the compliance officers, not, <laughs> not the not the VPs of no. Well, I, I can't say nice things about them. Right. The anti-creativity nice officers or another name yes, for exactly. them. Exactly. Um, but yeah, to me, it seems just looking, you know, what you do now, You the shackles are kind of off. Now you, you're you able to say anything you want. You're not worried about stepping on toes. Is this going against what we're trying to sell to the advisors on the with the left hand while we're saying this with the right hand? Jeff, it's it, the, 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 the coin of our realm today is authenticity. And if you're not authentic, if you're waffling or you're saying something because it support some other aspect of your company, people sniff that shit yeah. out, you know, from, from a, a mile from away. hundred miles, from a hundred miles. miles. Yeah. 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 So again, in the kind of, I didn't mean for this podcast turned into kind of like, you know, career advice, but, 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 yeah, but, no, I like but it. that's an important part of one, right? Don't, it's so don't compromise with your voice. Don't, because <laughs> it, well, that, you, can't, it's, you can't walk that back. It's a little bit of a weird side effect of the digital economy that authenticity has become more important, right? You'd, exactly. you'd think it actually would be less important in a digital economy. You could kind of just trade, you know, digital assets with each other, but it seems it's become more important. It, it has. And, and what I find, Jeff, is that so many people in this business, they confuse, they confuse themselves for their seat, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So they're the PM of blah, 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 or they're the, you know, you know, a, a managing partner at blah, blah, blah. And they have a seat and that seat commands respect. That seat commands people saying, oh, that's very interesting what you have to say. Right? That's very interesting what you have to say. Yeah. And, and it's human nature. It's, it's what we do, right? But we start to confuse our seat with ourselves and we start to think, oh, what I have to say, no matter how banal and you know, self-serving and corporate serving it is, people find that very interesting. Yeah. And if you ever find yourself outside of that seat, you know, so many people learn so quickly, yeah, it, it, yeah. it ain't you. Now you <laughs> need to say something real. Wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And if you haven't been saying something real the whole time through, eh, come on. You know, it's 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 hard to. People say, "Oh yeah, now, now you've got something interesting and truthful to say." Now you gotta, you, you gotta keep that authenticity and keep that integrity throughout. And so, and you're CIO of Second Foundation, but you guys aren't actually investing or allocating. You're just rec- well. Look, I mean, we, we are. In, we're, we're a registered investment advisor. Um, and we, we have part of our research is to 
design uh, systematic models, investment models based on our narrative research, and then uh, I'll say license those models to you know, large asset owners, pension funds, uh, you know, large investment managers and, and, and the like. We don't, we're not taking custody of anyone's funds. You're, you're yeah. exactly right in that respect, right? I, I, I'm never gonna run a hedge, I'll say never, but I'm never gonna run a 40 act mutual fund again. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. say that, I'll say that, right? And, I, and I, I can't imagine that I would ever run a hedge fund again, right? I mean, I mean you age in dog years when, yeah. when, you're, when you have custody of someone else's money and it's, also, I, I, I do want to write about whatever I want to write about. And that, if that's politics, I want to write about politics. If that's philosophy. Right, not worry it, about, write about if that. you pissed off your big investor number seven or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not just pissing off big investor number seven. I mean, you're, you're right, there's that. I think we should draw a little cartoon character of, of big investor number seven. Investor I have number a picture seven. in my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we all have that big investor number seven, yeah. <laughs> but the, it's not just about pissing them off. It's, it's that if you are a trader, if you're a discretionary PM, and your responsibility is OPM, other people's money, then by God, they deserve to be authentic. You better be managing that OPM all the time, right? That needs to be your focus. Yeah. And I'm not prepared to give up on all the other things I want to do in my life to have that monomaniacal focus on managing someone else's money. Uh, because that's that's what it takes if you're going to take that role. Um, and so are these other firms are using it as like just as one input out of many, and then they may use it as a trade, they may not use it as a trade. Well, it 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 can work that way. What we're what we've done, we've partnered actually with uh, with with UBS to to bring this as an investable index oh, wow. uh, to and and it's you know it's the sort of thing where it's a a sector rotation strategy essentially for the S and P five hundred where uh, instead of you know doing your monthly rebalancing on some fundamental or other factor. We think we've identified a narrative factor. You know, it's purely behavioral, right? It has zero to do with fundamentals on anything. Yeah. But what I think we can now measure and put into a strategy where you can really see it working is what I'll describe it as the, the business of Wall Street. And the business of Wall Street is to sell you a story. That's what, that's, what, that's what Wall Street does. That's what a multiple is. A multiple is a story, right? And, yeah. and that, that's, what, that's what the street does. Everything about the sell side is to sell. I call it the sell investing industrial complex, like the military in, industrial complex is the, right? Yeah, well, the think about what's going right now. What, what do you see? You know, every, everyone's banging the table right now. It's, oh, cyclicals. Let's buy cyclicals, right? Or... Uh, you know, they got to buy the XLI in a week, you know, or a month ago, it's, uh, you know, it's got to be tech, right? So it works well with the sector rotation strategy because most of the narratives that you get on a daily basis from, you know, CNBC and, you know, all your sell side analysts are focused on, you know, sectors. You know, buy financials, buy financials. Oh, it's really time to buy financials now. We got a steepening yield curve, right? And that story will last 
typically these, these narratives, these sector-based narratives, they've got a life cycle of about three months, right? So you've got about a month where they start beating the, 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 the drum. You've got a month of high energy drum beating, and then it tails off and you've got another uh, narrative that takes place, right? So it's, it's, it's like this sine wave of sector narratives that are, this, this is what you see when you start looking at the world through this lens of narrative. And you know, we'll, put, like, we'll put a link to some of your, those narrative clouds, because those are super cool that you have. Yeah, 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 yeah. And those, but, those, are, those are visualizations, but, but what we think we found, and then, again, this is my academic research 30 freaking years ago. So it's not like we've invented cold fusion or something, but the, the yeah. real difference today is that we've got, it's, it's big data. So everything that everyone writes or says or speaks, I can have access to immediately. And more importantly, it's called big compute. You know, my ability to just tap into AWS or Azure or what have you and get infinite, you know, computer processing power. The rare Azure reference. I, yeah, right, right, right. You're yeah. our first guest to ever mention Azure. To, to ever mention that? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing, right? There are utilities. Yeah. You just plug in the wall and you can have infinite computing processing power. On demand. Because, yeah, because that's, that's the other secret about all this stuff is that, you know, everyone talks about AI and machine learning and all that stuff. Yes, that all that exists, right? All that exists. But so much of that is marketing alpha. So, so, so much of, for example, what we do in our research, it's not AI, right? It's not yeah. machine learning. Or AP, like automation processes, it's automating just, processes. It's, it's massive, simple calculations, right? It's, it, it is literally in our case, and this is what all of what we call natural language processing is, you're just comparing words. That's all you're doing. You're just comparing words and grammatical structures. Now, as it happens, right, if you've got a thousand articles, and each article's got a thousand words, that's a thousand factorial to compare every word to every other word. That's that's half a trillion calculations you gotta make. Yeah, you need and a that would be a small AWS. right, but but now that you've got this massive computing processing power, you can do that in a second. It's crazy. But that's what's driving all this, all the advances, at least in you know what we're seeing. It's not like say some people are inventing some super brain or you know, yeah. inventing cold fusion. It's taking these old ideas, these old principles, and applying massive computing processing power to it and so marrying I, that with people who understand markets. So I got a few questions on that. One, you wrote a great piece, the market is, is a bonfire. Yeah. Right, not a clockwork machine, but it sounds like yeah. you're kind of saying like, no, it, we can model certain things and do. No, 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 I mean, I, I'm, this, is what, this is what a bonfire, so let's, Go back a little second, I'll, I'll step back and use a, another example. So the, yeah, yeah. the biggest computers in the world today, the, the, I guess the, really the top two US supercomputers essentially have one job. So they do all their flops on trying to do one thing. And that is to simulate nuclear bomb explosions. <laughs> That's what's driven really all of supercomputer research in this country, at least, the, whopper. the last 20 years is, is, yeah, that's right. Can you, can you simulate, instead of, From, uh, instead of actually testing a hydrogen bomb underground, can we test it by simulating it on a supercomputer? 
But here's the thing, that's a simulation. It's not a model. It's not a predict, what, 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 what these simulations do and the, way, the, the reason you need such massive computing processing power is it really is exactly like simulating a bonfire. You're not saying, oh, I have the algorithm for how the market works or I have the algorithm for how a bonfire works. No, you say, I have the rules for how a molecule combusts, right? I have the, the micro rule for how a word is spoken and then other words are spoken. I can observe, but I'm not gonna pretend that I have a model that can just predict for me. Because yeah. look, a, a model, you don't need a lot of computing processing power. For a simulation though, you need massive computing processing power. You're, and I like, this is what I like to say, we're not predicting, we're observing. And with enough computing processing power, you can observe both in closer and smaller and smaller time increments and time increments a little bit farther out, a little bit farther out, a little bit farther out. It's not, again, it's, it's a totally different approach than trying to say, oh, I'm going to predict this because I'm some super genius and I come up with this super brain and the super algorithm. It's, no, I've got some pretty basic ideas about how the world works, but I've got this amazing now computer technology at my fingertips to collect all that information and process it so I can see the world in a totally different way, in a different wavelength than I was able to see it before. And what some of these quote unquote AI hedge funds are kind of building what they would consider a simulation and their simulation says the market's gonna do X tomorrow. So where do you square that of like, is that a prediction or is that, well, right? They're kind of basing tomorrow's trade off the simulation of what- Well, see, see, no, what I, what I think you see most often with like, you know, say, let's say a, a, a two sigma approach, right? And, and, yeah. and how they're looking at some sort of stat R, you know, not, so what they're, what they're looking at though are these, microscopically small, I'll call it anomalies, that they, they, they know that these anomalies are going to be mean reverting. And so if you can apply that computing processing power to both see them, see these, these, these events and this information at tinier and tinier scale and at faster and faster speeds, you can find these, these call it a spark, in the bonfire that you can capture and try to make a little bit of money out of it. But that's the whole notion of StatArb, right? Is, is that you're looking at what I'd like to call this, this kind of fast twitch simulations. Uh, what, what, what I'm looking at, and this is- and So in that example, you here. don't need to know the whole bonfire. You're just trying to find one spark. Ex correct. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So. You know, it's, it really is a very different perspective to, to, to the way you're looking at the market. It's very different from the, the machine analogy, right, that, uh, that Ray Dalio uses, uh, the clockwork analogy, where, you know, you don't need a supercomputer to figure out or to predict what is going to happen in your clockwork an hour from now or 10 hours from now. But you can't do that with a bonfire, right? So yeah. either you look at very small uh, events in, 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 in great detail and try to capitalize on the stat arb, fast twitch stat arb, or if what you're looking at are, I'll call it slower twitch 
movements, and that's how narrative moves. Narrative doesn't move, you know, like that. It takes time. This is the, the social dynamic of what we call the common knowledge game for narratives to permeate like a virus, you know, like a meme through a, through a population. But you know those rules, you analyze it in a lot of detail, and you can try to get ahead of it. That's what we're trying to do. And I think you just hit on it with what you were saying there. But when you first talked about it, it, my brain went to these uh, hedge funds that were in the news of scraping Twitter and getting sentiment scores and and that kind of thing. So it differs from that in that you're not necessarily grabbing individual name sentiment, but instead what basically what's the common knowledge? I'm so glad you brought that up, Jeff, because if, if you know, getting kind of these kind of one liners on this sentiment doesn't work. Right. If, 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 if you're talking to someone and say, oh, we've got a great you know, market beating approach because we measure the sentiment of people saying about this. I, I mean, I've been doing this for, let's like, say, for 30 years. I'm going to run away from that. I'm going to absolutely run away from that. What, look, where sentiment can be useful, I'll say, is in extremely you know, fast twitch stat arm. Right. So if if you want to do a sentiment analysis and, and, and look, there, there, there are there are research firms that do wonderful work on sentiment. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not calling into question the quality of the work. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is that linking that to something that you can invest in, actual behaviors of markets, that's where it falls apart. Yeah. And all those it, funds that were in the news, you don't hear about them anymore. You don't, so, because it does, I'm telling you, it doesn't work. Yeah. The only place that, that I found that sentiment really works, and, and again, some of the, the, the bigger hedge funds do this and they do it really well, is on the really fast twitch stat arm stuff, right? So an announcement comes out, and if you can react in a, in a you know, 10 milliseconds to both analyze, did this announcement, this Fed speech say something weird and different, and how does that work, and is there an, a, you know, an arm opportunity here? and I can hit that, then you can do it. Beyond that, for us, I'll call it mere mortals who are kind of investing on a time frame of days or weeks or months, sentiment ain't it. What is it, I believe, very strongly, is what I would describe as the structure of narrative, right? It's not, it's, it's not oh, is this word a good word or is that word a bad word? No, it's what what are the patterns of language that are emerging here? What are the, the shared language, the same linguistic terms that it really is like a virus? I mean, you can see it like spread in, uh, you know, uh, among, you know, everyone who writes on the cell side or on CNBC or the like. That's what you're trying to pick up, right? You're trying to pick up the, the structural changes, and not, not the, the, the sentiment of the word. And the word could even mean different things at different times, right? Like that's oh when you God. see the unemployment report of like, are we hoping for more or less this month? I can't remember. Like, what's the what's the game this month? Exactly right, Jeff. That that's and that where confuses a lot of people. Like, hold on, there was bad news and the market went up. I went thought up. bad news was bad. Yep, yep, yep. It all depends on what that link is with the structure of the narrative. And, and that, that's, what we're, that's what we're focused on, is trying to understand structure, not sentiment. And do you, do you think 
it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that that structure is there or are there actual players that are making it right so if unemployment oh. number comes out bad and the market goes up are the players already know that in advance or is it you know are they linked players or are they unlinked i guess i'm saying so it's 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 not a grand conspiracy thing right um I'll distinguish between what I like to call macro narratives and micro narratives. So a micro narrative is gonna be a narrative around a specific company, a sector, right? Uh, it's like, and it's not that every sell side firm gets together and say, hey, you know, let's, let's start pushing, you know, financials. Yeah. Let's start banging the table. We gotta buy financials, gotta buy financials. Now, what happens is you have, as with anything else, you've got narrative entrepreneurs, right? You got a sell side analyst, he's got an idea. It says, I'll write this note about, you know, financials. And I'm trying to say something interesting or new, but basically I'm saying buy financials. And maybe I'll use a turn of phrase, I'll use a word where, oh, that kind of clicks with people. You know, his desk says, oh, we got we got some flows on this, 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 you know, this report you wrote. And then, uh, you know, some other, you know, zero edge will pick it up and says, oh, this report's really kind of making a deal, right? And then other people, that's how this spreads. And then the language spreads. It's, it's a very different business model on the street today than it was, you call it, certainly in the 2000s, right? Um, where you had an ax on a, on, a, on, a, on a stock or a sector. And so, you know, whatever, you know, Henry Blodgett said about tech stocks, right? That, that would move markets. It doesn't work that way, right? Because anymore, both because what Blodgett was doing was illegal, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's that, right? But, but then when, you know, when, when the street had to separate its investment banking from its research functions, what, you're gonna pay, you know, Henry Blodgett $3 million a year? No, no, there's, there's no more star system where your research right. guys can drive banking business. So what you have now in the sell side is they're basically sweatshops, right? Where you're paid a fraction of what Blodgett was making because there, is no more, there are no more stars on sell side research. Instead, the idea is you just gotta crank it out. You just gotta crank out the stories. But what, so, what I can see where you had the IPO, right? And you want to get the IPO bid up. But once the stock's public, who, why are they in the game of trying to make that stock go up? Oh, trading volume. Well, well, well hey, it's okay. a story. It's a story that generates volume, right? Because that's now how the research side gets paid. They can't get paid on the, on, on the banking business directly. They get paid on flow, on volume. So if you're a, if you're a sell-side analyst, that's your job. But right, so they have inventory of that stock that they want to turn over? Well, no, no, it's not that it's not that they've got the inventory that they're like some prop desk, right? That they're creating yeah. a story to, to, you know, make their inventory worth more. It's that, you know, this is what supports the sell side today or the, or the research side. It's selling. It's trading volume. That's what does it. Right, but to me, it's almost like, bills. why why go to every sector? You could just be like, just have one research analyst on Apple or something, right? Like, well, but, but but see, that's exactly what's happened, Jeff. So so on the research side, you don't why why are we going to have an industrials analyst when you know these industrial stocks trade like death? You know, yeah. even if they're a, <laughs> a you know they're they're a they're a mega, they're a large cap industrial, and we do like I don't know, you know. 10,000 shares a day. 
right? We're going to pay this guy to cover the industrials? No, 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 no. What we're going to do is we're going to have five guys cover story stocks. We're going to have them cover consumer discretionary. We're going to have them cover tech. We'll have them cover media. TMT, right? The old TMT stocks plus, you know, some consumer discretionary like Tesla. Yeah. Do that. Right? And so that's what you've had. There, there's no more sell side coverage on, you know, industrials and, you know, material stocks. Yeah, and like paints paints or something. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, it doesn't exist. And so that was another question of, has the whole move, right? What's the FANG is like 25% of the S&P now or something? Like, does that lessen your value or your research of sector to sector in that sine wave, right? If it's all in one, if the narrative's all about FANG just goes up, by Fang, right? It seems like that would lessen the narrative of approach. No, because everybody needs a better mousetrap when it comes to S&P 500, right? Our business is one of relative returns. So it's, it's <laughs> you know, and, and you, right? I, I, I mean, if, if you can outperform S&P 500 by an, an iota, by any yeah. sort of incremental amount, You've all the money it. comes to you. Yeah, you'll buy an island someday. Right. Exactly. And so that's that's what we're that's what everyone's trying to do. You're trying to say, okay, do you have that idea, that 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 factor, that 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 special sauce, right, that can allow you to do a little bit better than the broader overall market? And you know. It's taken us a long time. That's why that's why I shut down the hedge fund, right? It's trying to figure, well, how can you make money? You know, what is a source of of, of alpha in this world? And I I I think it, it it really is narrative. It's really is understanding behaviorally how we respond to these stories that are the core business of Wall Street. Now, I'll say one other thing, because you know, we, we we trade some some emails around this, and there was another um story out in the journal today about SoftBank and trading, you know, the tech stocks and the FANG stocks. Yeah, I was going to ask that next of like... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So it's to your question about do people, can you can you start a snowball going downhill? And and the, the answer is absolutely you can. And so my, my belief, and I, and I think there are a lot of, I'll call them discretionary uh, traders who do this today, they've they've figured out that this is a market, it doesn't run on fundamentals. It runs on narrative, it runs on a story you can tell. And one way to create a story, one incredibly powerful way to create a story is to try to hit a stock, an option, right? So, you know, to, 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 to try to create some movement, to start a snowball rolling down the hill and try to get that snowball to pick up its own, it, 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 its own inertia, right? To become a really big snowball down at the bottom of the hill where you're, you've been waiting, right? So I, I absolutely think that there are these firms, I think SoftBank's one of them, right? That intentionally is trying to roll, you know, a dozen snowballs down the hill every day in their trading. Or even up the hill, right? So I think- Or and even that, up the hill, right. Yeah. big market narrative right now, every time you see a big move up or down is dealer hedging, dealer gamma. 
right? And the the it was like a, the market moved to that level, like a moth to a flame, because that's where all the gamma was. So it just to me, it seems a little too cute, a little Facile. too. Um, yes. And it is. And, and it's, it is, Jeff. And it's a narrative couched in actual data, right? Of like, well, that's where the options find. So it's very intriguing. It's very alluring. But yeah, what are your thoughts on besides what we just so, said of like the data portion of that? So, so look, there, there is a, it, well, first of all, let me preface this. I'm not an options trader, right? Jeff, you have forgotten more about options than I'll ever <laughs> know, right? And, you know, and, and, you know, guys like, you know, you've had them on like squeeze metrics, right? And, yeah. uh, or, you know, Ben Eifert or something like that. You, I, you're at a, they see the game I, differently. They do, right? And it's like, you know, my, my, my partner, uh, Rusty Gwen's from Texas and he, he cooks an amazing barbecue, right? He's a great barbecue chef. All right. I can cook a barbecue, right? I, I mean, I know the recipe for a barbecue. I know, I know the definition of Vanna, right? <laughs> right, right? right. But I've never, I've never been in the, the kitchen, right? I don't, I don't really know what it is or how does one experience Vanna or any of these kind of second level groups. And you don't, right? have a, I, you don't have a barbecuer with a hitch, right? <laughs> right, right. And Rusty does, right? So that's yeah. the thing. So, so when, anytime I'm going to be talking about kind of options markets, right? Please, you know, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not at, the level of a, of a barbecue, yeah, yeah. you know. I think my point is it's, it's always been there, but it was in the background, but now it's in the press. Now it's front now page. it's a story. And yeah. that's what I do understand. That's what I can't understand, right? Because look, the truth is, look, there is such a thing as gamma and gamma squeezes and, you know, and, you know, delta hedging. That's a real thing. And there is a real mechanistic impact to market prices from that. But your point's exactly right, Jeff. That alone, just I'll call it the mechanistic impact of delta hedging and gamma hedging and the like, that's, that's, not, that's nowhere near the whole, the driver of this, right? The driver of this is in large part, I think, the story, the mythology, the legend that comes up around that. It, it's, it's very similar, you know, as, as poking fun at, you know, Stan Druckenmiller and Lee Cooperman earlier for yeah. having this conversation in 2012. But it's, it's very similar to what the, 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 the Fed, the, the impact of, of QE in the Fed. There's a mechanistic impact of the Fed's purchases, right? There is. Right. There is the, the, what, what the Fed buys, you know, drives up the price and down the yield of the, you know, the fixed income securities that they're buying, the, the, the treasuries or the NBS or whatever they're buying. There's and that what, mechanistic impact. And the science or the math is it's become a lesser and lesser effect. Right? Exactly. And yet the story that the Fed's got your back, that the Fed's actions and their liquidity are responsible for everything that happens in market world, that story has, everyone's a believer, right? Right, as strong no as one it's believed ever been. Exactly, exactly. And that is what has the impact. It's the story and the acceptance of the story. So what and I think- I'm, guilt, I'm guilty of that personally back in oh. nine, 10. And like, I didn't want to get back in the market. All this debt, all this yada, yada, yada. But the common knowledge was the Fed has your back. 
borrow as much as possible, plow it into stocks. Levered long, baby, levered long, right? And 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 that that is what worked, right? And so it, it's what George Soros used to call about reflexivity, right? That, that price is itself a narrative and a story. So, you know, what Soros was writing about was that the, and, and it's, it, it's at the core of, you know, call it of, of momentum, of the behavioral aspect of momentum or aspect of momentum trading, right? Is that price itself becomes a story and a narrative. And so higher prices, they get higher prices. Yeah. What, what I'm talking about is that notion of reflexivity and the impact of story, but beyond just the story that price tells, but the stories that CNBC tells and the story that every sell-side analyst tells and the stories that we tell ourselves, right? When we're, we're talking about the, the, the stories that are yeah. the, most, the most dangerous of all. So one, one last kind of story to, 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 to kind of, I hope kind of pull this together. You know, I, I think most of us who are involved in markets have a rough sense of how, you know, Vegas odds work, right? So what we know is, okay, the line on a game, it's trying to balance out the people who are betting on one side versus the other, right? So if, uh, you know, a lot of money, if the, if the Pats are favored by, you know, three and a half points and a lot of money comes in on, on, on the Patriots, then that line will go down to three points right. or two and a half points. That that's, that's how these betting lines work, that they're just evening out the amount of money that's being bet on both sides of the, of the line. In truth, though, that's not exactly right. So with, with one of these, you know, a big, you know, Vegas, you know, bookmaker, $100 that comes in from a guy who's a consistent 60% winner, that's going to move the line a hell of a lot more than $1,000 coming in from Joe Blow. Right, right. It's not just this mechanistic, oh, we have to balance the money on one side versus another. If you're on a desk and you're basically setting the line, right, with your prices that you're, that you're, that you're, you know, bidding, yeah. asking and taking, right? You know, big order comes in from smart money. You know, the, the what's his name, who was the, the, the head of prop trades at Deutsche Bank, who then goes over and runs, you know, SoftBank's new, you know, trading edifice, right? That money that comes in from him, it's going to move the market, even in this mechanistic sense, more than you know, oh, here are the flows from Robinhood, right? Right. Both are impactful, but the, I would the love guys to have seen how Robinhood blew up in your maps. I'm sure it became a. It's enormous, right? And it, it's again, it's this kind of gamification of, of you know, level up and start trading options. That's that's right. literally something you get right. on Robinhood. You got right? the options badge now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get the get a new badge. You get badging. So. You know, that's a whole nother conversation about the way we use story and narratives, story arcs to advance our commercial purposes. But all I'm saying right now is that if you're the guy running SoftBank's massive day trading operation, you know a couple of things. You know that you can move the line through your peppering with bets, particularly in the options market, you have outsized impact beyond just the mechanistic impact that you have. But more importantly, you have the ability to create a story. Mm. 
Yeah. You let you you tell the you you don't keep it a secret from the trading desk that you're, you know, BSD at 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 SoftBank and you're making this bet. You want them to know who you are, right? yeah. because they're going to tell their other guy who tells someone else who tells someone else. That's how you get these snowballs rolling downhill. That is absolutely a successful trading strategy these days, and it's absolutely what I think the most successful traders do. And I'm always like, how many e-minis does the China sell before they <laughs> say the trade talks are off, right? Like a hundred million worth, a billion worth? Um, and, for sure, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing's going on. Uh, for sure. Let me, so we covered a lot there, but um, so what are the narratives right now that you're saying? And maybe we could focus, you mentioned the Fed. To me, that's the mother of all narrative switches. As soon as that narrative switches from the Fed's always got your back, if it ever will, right? That's that's a sea change. Yeah. Look, look. That's that's the the only that's the only narrative break that I can ever see resulting in a you know a a real meaning lasting more than two weeks. Yeah. Bear market in the in the S and P five hundred, right? I, I mean, yes. If if a plague hits, we can have a, a bear market for, for two weeks and then, you know, and two weeks later it's gone. But, but, but if, if that Fed narrative breaks, then that's the story that is, that changes everything. So you have to think, well, what could possibly break that narrative? And the only thing I can see that breaks that narrative is if you get the long end of the curve moving up because you've got real persistent inflation. Even then, I think the Fed's gonna say, oh, we're gonna pull a Japan and we're gonna to try to do yield curve control. And we're gonna go out and we're gonna buy all, you know, all the debt right? yeah. that, 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 that the treasuries put out there. Uh, it's, this has been the big thing I've written about for there. Our, our capital markets have been transformed into a political utility. Their political utility, and if that breaks, if the notion that this that the, the, the capital markets are political utility breaks, it will be because the Fed cannot control some aspect of this. It's like trying to push a a, a beach ball underwater under your pool, right? It always pops up somewhere. Except this time, if you can put a lid on the entire pool, you can keep that beach yeah. ball underwater. Um, and if you got everyone around the pool to agree that they'll never see it popping up. That's what it takes. That's right. What it that's, takes. So, that's to me, that's like it not only it. has to have some actual thing happen, but everyone has to switch and everyone, no one in the game wants it to, you know, they don't want the music to stop. No one ever wants the music to stop. Right. And that, that to me was the, you know, the, the, the chef's kiss, right. Of, you know, Lee Cooperman and Stan Druckenmiller, when you know at the at the <laughs> at the at the end of what it was, you know, 2019, right? That 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 oh the on Christmas Day, you know, drunken says, oh save us, save us, Dad. How how can you possibly be, you know, you know, you know, loosening rates, you know, you have to or, or tightening rates, you know, you get you got to save us here, and it's just like, come on, guys. I, I mean, have you no shame? But but now everyone just just just. You just go beg at the Fed and they'll give it to you. They'll give it to you because that's what our political stability rests on. 
I hear you. So we'll wrap up soon, but I wanted to give you some props for all the work you've done and sent out all the N95 masks. Thank Just you. T- Jeff. Tell us a little that. bit uh, what you've done there and how many have gone out. All the uh, so so so. Let look, us feel good we, about the world for a sec. Well, exactly right. I, I mean, um, we started this in March uh, when it was clear that the N95 masks were not getting to the people, the heroes on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, the EMTs who needed this sort of armor. And, you know, I won't go through the whole litany of of why the equipment wasn't getting trickled down from federal stockpiles and the like. Read the grifters part one or two, which one was? Kodak was part one, grifters part one was Kodak. All right. Grifters part two was the, the N95 masks. But so we, we started, we like to call it an underground railroad of um, N95 mask supply, where you know, we had people in China, they, they were they're, they're employees at, at Intel, and they just, they just wanted to help. So we were buying them. They're like American individual. citizens or Chinese citizens? Chinese citizens, working yeah. for an American company. That wanted like, to help. Yeah, we want to help. We, we really want to help out. It, it really will make you feel better about the whole world. Yeah. And so they'd like go, they, there were limits on, you know, how many they could buy as a person and how many they could ship out. So we're getting like dozens of little packages every day with, you know, 50 masks inside. Like there and to the farm or where were they coming? There in? to the farm. Yeah, we, we, we cleaned out our garage and set it all up to, to be this kind of repackaging facility. And now we get, we've gotten some good orders. We get like 50,000 masks at a time. So we've got a good supplier and we test the masks, you know, with a, uh, a big university hospital just down the road and to make sure it's good quality. And then we've, we've connected with now over 1,400 clinics and hospitals, fire departments, police departments, shelters, prisons, and we send them 100 or 200 masks at a time because we're not sending it to their corporate you know, warehouse. We're sending it straight to yeah, the docs and the nurses and the EMTs—they then share it with their team. We've distributed over one hundred and sixty thousand N95 wow. masks to fourteen hundred clinics and hospitals and shelters and prisons. I say emergency departments in forty-nine states. We send out about four thousand a week. Who's who's the missing state? Uh, it was it was actually Alaska. Alaska, Alaska was the missing state. You know, the Dakotas got picked up uh, this last state, but now, you know, I, I'm I'm sure we'll have some to Alaska pretty soon. That's great. And so, and you've been you were early, from my opinion, from what I was reading on Twitter and whatnot. You were early to the COVID. You were pointing out the stats, and it it would brought into stark relief to me. There's people in my life and world of people who get geometric versus arithmetic. Right. That yeah. was the whole game to me of like. Yeah. What do you mean? There's only four cases. We don't need to worry about it. I'm like, well, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16. Jeff, you're exactly right. I mean, people who live with you know, geometric uh, progressions in their lives, like traders do, you know, yeah. you know, you kind of got a sense of the math or how this works. They got it. They really did get it. And um, so I'm really grateful to the support because we, we raised a little over a million dollars back in April to, to fund all this. Um, 
And, and it was, it was, it was, it was, there was a wide range of, of, of giving, but, you know, 90% of it was from this financial investment community, which I'm yeah. incredibly grateful. And how, how have you been handling all the haters? I see you retweet some of those, <laughs> right? It's unbelievable. The people it's are just unbelievable. Like, it's un- it, like, it is that, unbelievable. I don't get it, right? You're just doing, trying to do good in the world and they're coming at you. And, it's hard, right? I, I mean, I like to say I've got a, you know, thick skin and it doesn't bother me, but it does. It does. I mean, I'll get, you know, a dozen nasty emails or tweets every day. You know, I'll block them all and two more, two more come up. It's um, it's frustrating, you know. It, it's become politicized, as everything yeah. else has in our world. So, which is so terribly unfortunate. Um, and That'll be our next part. By both, it's been politicized there. by the Dems too. But, uh, but man, yeah, it's uh, it's okay. There, there are enough. Uh, uh, you know, when we, like I say, when we raise that money and there's the the just the immediate outpouring. That the only time. It's ever been easy to raise money. My, you know, my yeah. my entire life. It's, it's never easy to raise money, right? You know, right. This People was easy. Boom. This was easy. And you're still so, doing it. You're still getting the mask. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, we got that's crazy to me that it's there's still a need for that, right? It, like More we haven't ever, sorted right? that out yet. Well, here's what's different, Jeff. The the really big metro hospital systems, they're good. They're good. So like you know, Columbia Presbyterian in. New York City. They don't need our, they did in, 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 in March, they needed our masks. Yeah. Absolutely they did, but they don't need our masks anymore. So if you're in a big metro area, so you know, Chicago, right? So, you know, Cook or whatever, you know, the, the, the big hospital systems in Chicago, they're good. What's not good is any hospital or any clinic outside of a big metro area, right? If you're in a, if you're, if you're a rural clinic, you're a you're an EMT and department in you know some decent sized town. They're the ones we're sending all our stuff to because they're still not getting it. Which is crazy. Well, um, kudos to you for putting all that together and helping all those people out. All right, we'll go into our favorites. I got a million other things to ask you, but we'll save it. We'll have you back on another time and talk through statistical predictions and raccoons and coyotes and all that good stuff. You got it, brother. Uh, Anytime. Uh, but we'll, we end with some rapid fire favorites, all our pods. So I'll ask you some uh, <laughs> favorite animal on your farm. Oh, definitely the goats. No question about it. The goat. Do you have like the ramps and the all that stuff for them? Uh, we we have some, but they don't need it. Goats are the most fun-loving, generous, kind creatures you can imagine. They are they are the opposite of chickens and sheep, who I can't stand because they're incredibly selfish. <laughs> I actually went to a goat cheese place last Thanksgiving um, in Wisconsin near my wife's aunt's house. We went there and you see the goats getting milked and have some goat cheese appetizers and whatnot. It was a nice. We've, we've never done the goat milking stuff because, of course, you have to get the, the goat has to be pregnant and has to have a, a baby to do that. Uh, and to get pregnant, you've got to bring in a billy goat. And those male goats, they are the worst creatures in the world. <laughs> okay. They're, they're, and I noticed, I noticed at ways. this facility, they're milking uh, bearded 
there. So there's bearded female goats. Absolutely. Yeah. They have horns too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And horns. Uh, favorite Bama football team. Favorite year. Uh, 1972, because well, I was eight years old and, you know, okay. whatever your football team is when you're eight years old is your favorite. All right. You Johnny didn't have, Musso. who was on that team? Johnny Musso. I'm sure, you know, well, of course you know. Yeah. I don't know who that is. Um, I thought you were going to go with like, uh, Derek Henry and one of these oh yeah that uh, every every era's got 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 some faves and you know but it's but it's hard at least publicly to root for alabama today it's like it's like maybe not this year but it's like rooting for the patriots right i mean they're yeah. like the death star it's yeah. like rooting for the death star but, but <laughs> like my grandfather played there my uncle played there all right i i grew up in the the church of bear bryant so i come by it honestly i'm not a I'm not a bama fan come lately the uh, uh, favorite favorite comic book, comic book. Uh, so so currently, I like anything that Tom King does. So he wrote the series, the the the, the Vision series, right? He did a series on uh, Miracle Man. Uh, he's got a new thing coming out. Uh, I like anything by Tom King. Kind of recently, you know. Of course, I, I grew up with the, the the Sandman and Neil Gaiman. You know, so yeah. I've you know that that whole genre but uh and how do you man i just love comics i just i i, I get I, i've never I, been really a comic every wednesday every wednesday you go to your local comic store and get them all um and how do you get all your pop culture into your writings that just pops in your head or you research it or what well the older pop culture you know you've got imdb now to get all your quotes and you've got goodreads to get all your quotes from books so that that's my dirty little secret on the older pop culture and pop culture today, you know, I've got four daughters between the ages of 16 and 23. So I'm pretty well covered there. All right. Uh, and then lastly, we end with everyone's favorite Star Wars character. Uh, well, <laughs> I, mm, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I mean, can we do the Mandalorian? I mean, is that okay now? Sure. Or do I have to go from the can? No, you can, right? you can come modern. You can go classic. I, I mean, I mean, how can you how can you not like the Mandalorian as your favorite character these days? Right. I mean, it's uh, it's it's this it's. I was going to say it's the single best thing to happen in a long time, but I'm the kind of thing the the Mandalorian may be the best thing that ever happened. To the, <laughs> it the is. Star it's Wars like a spaghetti western with the right. Um, right on. Right on. I'm I'm wondering if that actor is like, dude, I, you're paying me all this money, but can I take my helmet off once or twice? I think he's pretty happy. I'm sure he's pretty happy. Definitely. All right, Ben, well, this has been fun. Uh, we'll put in the show notes how to get a hold of you and where to sign up for all your good stuff and donate for the masks if people want. And uh, Fantastic. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at RCMAlt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.